This IFF podcast now has an official sponsor, the IFF Financial Corporation. That's great. The IFF Financial Corporation has really helped the IFF a lot over the years, and I'm really glad to see them sponsoring this podcast as we continue to grow it. So before we get started with this episode of the IFF podcast, I urge everybody to visit Financial Corporation's website, www.iaff-fc.com. And welcome back to another edition of the IFF podcast. Uh, Mark Treglio is sitting here today with uh, Doug Stern. How you doing, Doug? Well, Mark, looking forward to today's podcast. I think this is going to be a really interesting episode for a lot of our members. Well, Doug, with these interesting times that, that we are in, uh, as well as the civil unrest, what I want to do is focus on one particular city for this episode. That's the city of Atlanta, long known as the pillar of the civil rights movement, also home to one of the best fire rescue departments in the country, and that's the Atlanta Fire Rescue Department. And, and really, they were in the middle of a lot of the things that were going on in our nation over the last couple of weeks and months. Absolutely. I think it, it is appropriate that we have them here talking to us today. Yeah, and joining us today, two members of the Atlanta Fire Rescue Department, members of Local 134 uh, in, in Atlanta. That's Paul Gertish, president of the uh, Local 134 Atlanta Professional Firefighters. How are you today, Paul? Mark, I'm doing good, sir. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, doing excellent. We also have with us today, Andrew Anderson, Local 134 member. Sergeant and paramedic. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be with you guys. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming, man. Andrew, while I got you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah. So I uh, pretty much said uh, most of it in that in that one sentence. But uh, and There's I, a lot I, more to you than just those two sentences, <laughs> man. Come on. I've, uh, I've been, been with the city of Atlanta as an employee since 2012. Um, it has been it's been a wonderful uh, cascade of challenges and just uh, personal growth since then. Uh, when I first came in, I actually joined the fire department because I liked the schedule. I was selling cars at Nissan, and today uh, I'm a tested sergeant, paramedic. Um, just really love the job. Uh, I've always lived in the metropolitan area. Um, when I was born at Crawford Long. Uh, Emory now is what it was is what it is now, but it was it used to be called Crawford Long. So definitely born in an Atlanta hospital. Um, I've lived in Riverdale, lived in the city of Atlanta, went to high school uh, in Eagles Landing, which is out in the suburbs, and then I went back to college at Morehouse College. So I haven't completed my bachelor's degree, but I do plan on doing so. So where, where are you assigned in the city, Andrew? What company are you on? So I'm at Station 2 on the B-Shift. Uh, Station 2 is in the Lakewood area uh, near the Lakewood Amphitheater. I apologize for not remembering what they uh, just named it, but it's definitely uh, diverse in the call volume. Uh, we have a lot of interstate access, you know, definitely structure fires, a lot of EMS calls, um, just any, anything you can ask for as far as you want to develop experience. And back to you, Paul. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you're assigned. All right. Uh, actually, originally born and raised in Southern California. Moved out to uh, Georgia in uh, 2009. Got on with Atlanta Fire and Rescue Department in 2010. Uh, celebrated my 10th anniversary. I'm a paramedic lieutenant at uh, Company 31 on C-Shift. That's on the uh, that's in the southwest Atlanta 
and we've got a ton of interstate, ton of uh, residential uh, buildings, not a whole lot of commercial, but it's a, a well-established uh, firefighting company out in southwest Atlanta. Now, Paul, for those who don't know much about Atlanta Fire Rescue, uh, why don't you give us an overview of the department? So, city of Atlanta is uh, the capital of Georgia. We've got uh, approximately about 800, 830 sworn members. Um, we uh, operate 32 engines, 16 ladder trucks. There is a private EMS company that does all of our EMS transport um, outside of the airport facility where we've got five stations where we have uh, assigned paramedic uh, ambulances at stations at Jackson Hartfield uh, Airport, the uh, most traveled airport in the U.S., the world, once again, comprised of uh, single and double companies. Uh, we have our technical re rescue squad four is located in the, the heart of the city downtown. Let's see, six battalion chiefs on duty uh, downtown, one at the airport on a daily basis, one division chief. We've got uh, approximately 580 members in the local 134. So let's 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 backtrack three months ago uh the nation was shocked by the by the george floyd killing everybody saw it everybody knows about it i'm not going to get that much into it but all across the country there was uh pockets of unrest in the cities across the country and atlanta experienced its own share it was no different uh you guys want to tell us a little bit about that what you experienced and uh you know how you felt on the job during all of that uh sure sure that first weekend after uh, George Floyd's death up in Minneapolis, we did see the, the, the nation shift towards that conversation and uh, the, the focus on public safety. And as the community there in Minneapolis rallied, you know, against the treatment of, uh, of George Floyd and uh, the, the officers that day, it spun through the city of Atlanta as well through the rest of the nation. And, you know, here in Atlanta, there were peaceful protests uh, that started to gather um, that, that first Friday night outside of the CNN Center. Atlanta's got several uh, media outlets, one being uh, CNN. And uh, when they want to put in, when the community wants to put protests together, it's a great uh, place to do it because they know they're going to get some good coverage to talk about the issues that they want to address. And um, as that first night grew of protests, when the peaceful protesters uh, had gone home after their message was uh, was uh, documented, some of the um, violent protesters, you know, stayed, and um, the scene went from a peaceful protest to almost a, a violent situation almost instantaneously, and um, it spread from downtown a a Atlanta through the northern uh, parts of of Atlanta into uh, the Buckhead community, and you know, from there you. You had some some pretty good footage that was seen throughout the uh, the nation of fire trucks getting rocks and bricks thrown at them. There's a, a you know a pretty popular video that went viral of uh, windshields getting smashed with companies responding to a structure fire um, in North Atlanta. And that particular night, there was I think three maybe four apparatuses that were taken out of service with excessive damage. Uh, that first night, we didn't have any serious reported injuries. We did have one member said that he did get hit by a, a brick that had uh, 
gone through the window, but uh, that was just treated on scene and he, he finished his uh, shift. And from there, that, that, that first weekend kind of spurned peaceful protests in the daytime during daylight hours. And as it grew night, the, the protests became uh, violent. That's when some emergency protocols were put in place by the uh, fire department to uh, protect the uh, members. M- members were, were told to put on their ballistic vests and helmets on, on all calls. The downtown companies had uh, sheriff's department vehicles responding on calls with them to add security and uh, safety for the uh, members. Andrew, as, as an Atlanta area native, what's going through your mind during all this? Well, yeah, just, just being an Atlanta native, uh, just being African-American, and just really understanding how the algorithm of social media works and you know, just trying to be meticulous before you come to a conclusion uh, from what you see on the media. That specific instance was, it was very, uh, along the lines of traumatic for me. It's, um, you know, it was really sad. I was, I was very heartbroken. And I feel like a lot of people in the African-American community were heartbroken by it. Anybody who is an advocate uh, of really humanity you know, I, I know people have different perspectives on it, but I I felt like that was a very sad, tragic thing that happened. And I think one of the most distant and, and just long lasting impacts that you have from a situation like that that's recorded on video is that it, it gets spread so fast. And so my understanding on trauma is, you know, so many things can be traumatic. It can be a car accident, you know, it can you it can you be falling off of a ladder. It can you be seeing things that you perceive as being racism as being unjust and in our media now our media is very polarized at how they spread information so everybody can have their you know their respective opinions on it but there's a lot of legitimacy in the messages that we do get in the media and on social media but there's also companies that profit off of people being triggered so there's a problem, there's a solution, and then there's a way that we suggest and kind of propagate how we fix these problems. So I personally feel as if, you know, protesting is a very good thing. It, it brings the attention of the people that make decisions. It brings the attention of other people who may not be aware. I've just always been, uh, especially in probably like the last five years of my life, just skeptical and just really wanting to get the details and just really wanting to understand what is the meaning and who benefits by delivering this message. So just kind of seeing how everything played out and then that running into Rayshard Brooks, uh, they were different situations, but the outcome, and I think this is something that what, what, what my point is really alluding to, the outcome and the situations that you have to deal with as a police officer and as a firefighter is more so based on the prevailing narrative. And it may not be more based on an accurate investigation. It may not be based on specific details. And this is what you have to be prepared for. You have to be prepared for how the narrative is delivered. So, you know, I have my personal sentiments, everybody has theirs, but as a, as a public servant, you have to be ready for how this narrative impacts the people in your area. And that's just something that we really have to be cautious of is the way that information is disseminated on social media. So after that happened, and it was coupled with Rayshard Brooks, 
we're seeing a lot of people that are hurt based on their interpretation and understanding of what's happened. I feel like as a as an informal leader as my station, I think it's really important to understand people. And it also helps you to understand people as a public servant. And that was just, that was just really the, the, I think the catalyst of, of me trying to understand what's going on in the world and how we respond to it. So. Let me ask this question, kind of as follow-up and Paul, either you or Andrew can, can hop in. Were either of you working that first night of the unrest when things got unruly? Uh, no, I wasn't. I was off. No. Uh, yeah, I was, I was off as well, but the, uh, the calls came out as the protests started to grow and grow. The, the leaders in Atlanta said, you know, saw that we needed to add, you know, more personnel on the rigs. And so the calls went out to hire up to, uh, it, to get uh, more people on the rigs. And a, a lot of Atlanta firefighters, you know, showed up that, uh, that night to uh, provide more uh, power on the rigs. Are, are folks coming back? It sounds like the fire department was responding in real time and not waiting for the next day for things to happen, which is a, probably a great tip for people as they go through this to respond in real time to have the assets ready for our folks. But what's that look like when you get called back in? Well, what, one thing that was great about the city of Atlanta and what Andrew was talking about, you know, allowing the uh, protest to have their uh, voice is that the, the, uh, the, the organized protests are done in conjunction with city leaders, with members of public safety to organize it, to have a spot where it is safe that people can gather. So that is one of the things I think the city of Atlanta has done actually very, very well for a number of years is organize those properly for the safety of the community, the protesters, um, and for, and for public safety. So credit to them for being so, uh, so great at the forethought and the planning of that as well. It's kind of a refreshing view to hear, right? That, that they're taking care of the people that are, they're, that are peaceably protesting, working together with them to get the point across. Absolutely. And you can see that Angie's talking about the videos and the, the clips and you, you, we can watch it live on Facebook or on Instagram. You know, every firefighter's got a, uh, a phone in, in their pocket and they're, they're watching the, these things unfold. And as, as they started to, it gives you insight. You can see where the, where the protests aren't normal anymore, where, it is, where, where the shift has, has kind of changed. And as that started to happen, the fire department responded properly. They started calling in members, uh, just, hey, we don't, you know, if you're a body, come sit on the back of a rig somewhere. And uh, just to protect that, there was a, I think they were on a structure fire, Andrew, you can help me if you remember. It, it probably went about 12 hours. It probably went from 11 to 11 and through shift change where the, where the crews came in the next morning um, and mopped up, finished up and uh, put out the remaining fire. It, it was a pretty long process and, you know, I definitely have a lot, a lot of respect for our leaders for trying to navigate the balance for hiring overtime, you know, fill, filling in the gaps as they can to keep us protected. At the same time, you know, back ordering, you know, mask and hand sanitizer as they can for the coronavirus and also just trying to mitigate all the other issues. Um, I, I think they did. I think they did a really good job at putting a foot forward to trying to find a balance with all of those. So we talked about 
we talked about the debris being thrown at firefighters. You had the video that went viral. You also mentioned the bulletproof vests were issued to members of the department. As, as members of Atlanta Fire Rescue waded into emergencies during these protests, uh, more so the violent ones, what are some of the procedures that were put in place? Any changes to dispatch protocol, uh, staffing on the engines? I know you called people back, but did you go from four to five or three to four on the truck? Uh, you know, what were some of the other things that were safety measures that were put in place to keep members safe? Well, uh, the, the, there was the order to uh, put on the ballistic vests and helmets on um, all calls downtown that weren't that where firefighting was not going to be your uh, task. If it was a medical call or a person down, things like that, then they were responding with the, the, the ballistic vests and uh, helmets on. I, I came on shift the next day. I, I picked up an overtime shift on an engine uh, in, in downtown, and we started our morning with three. And as the day progressed, uh, they had moved us up to them four as other people were getting hired and called back in. And I think within a, you know, a couple of days, actually, they started mobilizing sheriff's department units to uh, trail downtown companies on some of these calls to add more protection. It really puts a lot on the officer to look out for the crew members. Crew members there, you know, showed up to take care of the incident. Um, and the officer, as well as everybody, is, uh, you know, tasked with a little bit more on their plate other than your regular, you know, whether it be a structure fire, motor vehicle accident, or, um, you know, person injured during the civil unrest. Right. Yeah. And our fire department and our administration is very big on safety they always reiterate the importance of safety so uh around this time like you were saying they did mandate us to wear a bulletproof vest and i think it takes a different type of understanding and leadership to just really be confident going out in these situations and not knowing when anger can be misappropriated when someone you know who doesn't really care about the issues that are going on in the world and just possibly maybe looking for an opportunity to hurt you, uh, it is nothing that ever came up in any leadership class that I took. But I can tell you, just having to to put a bulletproof vest on, going to an EMS call, you know, hearing what happened to guys up in Buckhead, what, how they got bricks thrown at them, it was a very sobering experience. It's just very different, and it's a very different intersection for me because just being an advocate of, you know, just humanity, uh, being an advocate of the African-American community in so many ways, just as a person that gives back and, and, uh, and just tries to be a mentor however I can and, and really understanding issues outside of the way they're characterized in the media. Being here right now, you know, the firefighters are always the good guys. Like, we never get caught up in what's going on with the police officers. But, you know, as there are, all, there's always some type of wrong. Every institution has its flaws and bad things do happen. But I find myself in a difficult dovetail between, you know, trying to talk to people, trying to, trying to talk to people outside of the fire department and even people um, that we respond to, you know, don't, I don't want you to take your frustrations out on this police officer right here. How, how did you, in a very real way, take the fact that you had a ballistic helmet on, you had a ballistic vest on, you have a uniform with a patch on, how did you make it a point to distinguish yourself when you're on these runs away from the police that people had so much anger toward? 
Right. And you know, it's like, I want to distinguish myself, but then at the same time, I kind of want to let people understand that even though you just saw something that was very sad and, and, and something that you felt like was so terrible that I don't want to let one situation, one misunderstanding, one terrible thing that may have been done by somebody else in another department. I don't want you to feel like the police officer and the firefighter right here are doing you wrong. So you definitely have to take steps and, you know, educate yourself outside of the station on how to de-escalate because we're just kind of used to the police officers making the scene safe for us. But as a leader, you have to determine, okay, is this, is, is the potential of danger too great for me to treat this person that's sick? Is it too great for me to put the CPAP on this person because the environment around and being able to de-escalate sometimes, you know, while the police officers, they're like, Hey, you know, I'll let this person talk. I'll let this person vent and let them know, like, you know, I know what's going on right now, but I assure you, all this police officer wants to do is make sure that you're safe, make sure that I'm safe, and I'm here to take care of you. So just having that face-to-face -face interaction of just being confident, and, and that's how you really feel, and being able to let your patient understand that. I just have to take a one call at a time. And even also to be able to convey that confidence that, you are here to help. You have to talk to the members that you're on an apparatus with. And, um, you know, we've had conversations about that. Are you okay? Like, there's a lot. It was a cascade of things that happened this year from, you know, from police shootings, you know, just the impacts of how headline news reports just kind of sway the perspectives of people. And we're not, I, I feel like personally as a country, we're not the best at looking at the details of things that happen and just also addressing the feelings of, of a person that's there. Cause all of this is happening with the coronavirus. So. So obviously you guys were working also from the local level to create that distinction between firefighters may look a little bit different when they respond to you. I mean, talk about some of the conversations that you had with people as all of this is going on, as your members look a little bit different on runs and have to do a few different things than they normally do. You know, what, what's great about Atlanta, and I know you're going to have this throughout the U.S., is our, our diverse workforce. So the station I'm at, started the conversation. We had members kind of, you know, explain to members what this was about, you know, why this was going on other than the, the surface videos or the surface, you know, clips that you do see what the deeper issue is, what, what has caused it and what has blown this up to this particular point. So those members, you know, are now in a position where they're explain they're educating those that they've been working with, you know, um, you know, I didn't grow up in, in Georgia. So I'm listening to the, the men and the women in my stations and our local who grew up in Georgia, who call Atlanta their home. You know, guys like Andrew are people that I have talked to about, you know, give me a little bit more of what's happening here other than what I'm catching on social media or on, you know, Channel 2 News. And from there, we're able to, you know, actually service the community that we're in. This community we service is largely African-American. You know, those that need our, are the, that are, need our services, those who are underrepresented, you know, in the Atlanta area are the African-Americans. We really relied on those members born and raised in Atlanta to kind of lead the way there, you know, educate us on, you know, let's do this, you know, a little bit differently here. And I think it's really helped us grow as a department and as a local on what our actual impact can be here in the city. 
So we had the initial series uh, uh, of protests. We had initial bouts of uh, civil unrest, and then it sort of quieted down for a little bit. And then, you know, we'll shift over to Southwest Atlanta. Paul, you mentioned you worked there earlier. Uh, there was a second shooting on the Southwest side of Atlanta uh, that really, that really amped things up again, that put the department back in, into, into the, mo into gear again. I wouldn't say it let its, you know, it went back to normal, but you know, you're, you're back on it again uh, with full protests and everything. And uh, I believe that was a shooting of Rayshard Brooks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that happened a little bit after that initial um, George Floyd protest, civil unrest, um, and I think Atlanta kind of healed for a little bit and it got, you know, it got calm. They were still having the conversations and we were still growing as a, a department and as a, a, a local. And then um, Richard Brooks was, was killed in a traffic stop. Actually, as much as I say I'm, I'm in the Southwest Atlanta area, Andrew's uh, station is right around the corner and um, that station responded after the uh, shooting. It became a, na a national story. And it put the the uh, that that Southwest Atlanta area on notice um, at the corner of University and um, Pryor, where that Wendy's is. So actually, you could probably talk to Andrew about this because his his station was the one that responded to the uh, shooting, as well as the subsequent burning down of that Wendy's, as well as one more incident involving an eight-year-old little girl. So. Andrew, I mean, you've got some firsthand experience on, on, what, on what happened over there. One thing that is really interesting about the university and prior and where a lot of, you could say, your most extreme uh, outcomes from protesting has happened is that there's a liquor store right on the corner. So you've got people, you know, some people are getting drunk and then going to protest and you know, depending on what your true intentions are, it, it just really went on for a long time. And I don't think the city could tell the liquor store to be closed, but there are so many things that impact human behavior. You will never consider a place where so many people are hurt by what they've seen. They're upset. You know, there are things that are being displayed on TV and on their cell phones that are reminiscent of the 1960s and, you know, it's just you you mix that in with liquor and you just you just never know. It wasn't just about, you know, us responding to the call. It wasn't just about what happened. It was about the reaction and how do you prepare for it. And I think the best way you can do it is having difficult conversations. You know, I I appreciate y'all so much for doing this. You know, just having this podcast, especially after listening to the last one, because it is a difficult conversation. And it's having difficult conversations is the best way to fix the problems, whether it's in a fire station, whether you're on the call, just have it. Because I'm a patient advocate. I'm, a, I'm an advocate for firefighters. I'm an advocate for the African-American community in the way where it is a place where I have grown up and I understand the culture, and I understand some things that Paul may not be able to understand in the situation where he's responding to stuff, so. So, so what had happened was, it was another Friday night, I believe, and it was another A shift, a shift that Andrew and I both aren't assigned to, and uh, there was a um, traffic stop at that Wendy's, and the incidents that unfolded have been, again, on the, on the national stage, and unfortunately, a man lost his life that night. 
And what had happened after was, was it fueled that anger. It took that 24 hour period of video clips to come out of, you know, people sparking the conversation on both sides of the spectrum. You know, the, the police brutality, the Black Lives Matter groups, and then those that are on the far, you know, opposite side of those of that spectrum that, you know, speak out against, hey, you know, the he was resisting arrest. He should have, you know, complied, all of those things. You know, those those buzzword narratives that get uh, people fired up pretty quickly, you know, that generated another protest and civil unrest. But before the civil unrest that Saturday night, the following night, there was, you know, peaceful protests outside of Wendy's, you know, that were attended by, by city council members and other community leaders. And as darkness came in, the peaceful protesters left, you know, those who wanted to then, you know, who, who have been underheard and underrepresented, you know, spoke out again. And the, the, uh, the movement became violent again. And we saw that the, uh, the, the Wendy's was then set on fire right there on live television. I, I was watching it on CNN or one of the local channels as well. And I could see the fire engine parked down the street. So I'm on my cell phone getting a hold of that crew to find out who is responding. And I know they're a block away or, you know, a couple blocks away. And I'm telling them, look, man, that, that scene is bad. The, the fire is through the roof. If you guys even do anything, just go, you know, put the deck gun on it for about 10 minutes and get out of there. And as the National Guard escorted them in, I said, fellas, they're, they're tear gas in the area. Come off with your face pieces on. You know, you're not going to want to be in that environment. And from there, the crews there, they had, an in, they had a couple engines, a ladder truck and a battalion, you know, there along with the National Guard. And the National Guard gave them 10 minutes. They said, look, you got 10 minutes, put some lines, put some water on, on that fire, and then we're getting out of here. And uh, at that point, you know, I think, that's the National Guard pushed everybody out for the night, you know, in Atlanta PD. I think I'm saying National Guard, uh, probably it was Georgia State Patrol. Now that I think back a, a, about it, I should give more credit to Georgia uh, State Patrol for, you know, allowing the protesters to have their moment. But then when it turned violent, Georgia State Patrol, I think, stepped in and said, look, we've got to put an end to this before more gets burned down. I mean, there's it was adjacent to a, a, a gas station and other small businesses with, within that area. And you know, after that point, after that uh, Wendy's was burned down, uh, that then became an occupied corner in Southwest Atlanta, where those who wanted to continue their uh, message were able to get it out. You know, for a period of a week or two, that the news were down there interviewing, and uh, and the peaceful protesters had the daytime, and they can get get their piece in. We were instructed to avoid the area. There weren't any medical calls that we had to go in that particular area, or we could drive around them for any other fire calls or motor vehicle accidents because it's a main uh, entrance to the highway there. During all that time, Paul, are you guys still running with more than the normal amount of firefighters on each truck or did that kind of ebb after the first couple of nights of each incident? Well, you're right. It, it did ebb for a little bit. We're in a position right now where we're, we're staffing our rigs with three personnel and it's more to um, prevent fatigue amongst the members. And uh, that was made in early 2020, before Corona, before the civil unrest. We had moved to a three on the rigs because of our uh, depleted staffing um, through retirements and people moving on. And COVID, 
you know, hampering us from putting more people through training and into the field, we kind of got caught in that perfect storm where uh, we, we weren't able to staff with a four on the rig on a, on a daily basis. But as the protests, you know, escalated, they, they would put four on the rig. And we're in a spot right now where it has died down a bit. And so we're, we're back to three on the, uh, on the uh, rig. And Wisconsin happened, what, two, two, in the last 48 hours? You know, we're not at at the point yet where we where we have felt it down here in a, in, in Atlanta. So we haven't ramped up to hire keep four on the actual rig yet. You know, on t- top of that, we're dealing with all the members that are you know in, impacted by COVID, either through sick by themselves or through family members that they've got to uh, take care of. So you mentioned COVID nineteen. How is the department handling the that pandemic in the midst of everything else that's going on? You know, initially, I, I believe our fire department started off great as it's as things started to roll out this new and I, I you know forgive me for saying unprecedented time, but the the department you know relied heavily on information from the CDC, you know the best practices. You know, we 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 shared the uh, IAF's you know plan for keeping members safe and to provide uh, protection for. Uh, the community in which we're impacting it as well. And the fire department put a lot of those best practices in, in place. And for a very good amount of time, we were doing a very good job. We have kept our ex- member exposure down. In that first phase, we, we did a very good job. I don't think we had any more than probably half a dozen members become positive with COVID from uh, March through probably the end of May. And then when we moved into June and July here in August, it's actually increased. We haven't changed our plans at all. We've still got plenty of PPE. We do our uh, screenings on a regular basis, but um, the June through August, we've seen as many as 36 members at any given time be quarantined with uh, COVID illnesses or exposures. So Paul, as as the president of Local 134, there's an internal messaging component to all this. It's one of the things that Doug and I teach in all the classes that that we do teach for the IFF, that as part of every crisis, uh, it the local's job is to also keep the membership informed and have strong internal messaging. In addition to all of that, what are the steps you've you've taken throughout all of this, through the through the civil unrest, the COVID, the the changes in policy throughout the department? How how do you message to your members and how do you keep them all together in, in solidarity during times like this? Yeah, uh, well, th- thanks for asking, Mark. Um, as I know we just spent a little bit of time talking about how social media can uh, can highlight some of the um, can trigger some of the the negative images or or spurn a, a controversial topic, but there's also a ton of benefits to social media. Uh, we, we operate a, a internal Facebook page um, that we encourage all of our members to uh, become a part of, and that's where we can get that instant message out as as policies change, as day-to-day de- decisions are, are being made, we can get this out quickly and it's uh, become incredibly easy because these members are holding their, their phones in, 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 their, in their pockets while they're on duty and they're you know, with, with them when they're, they're at home. So if we need to get messages out, whether it be about um, extra overtime shifts uh, because of the uh, civil uh, unrest, we could 
members can jump on there or we can jump on there saying the 4th Battalion's hiring anybody needs to work. They need drivers. They need firefighters. They need paramedics. And instantaneously, you can get guys calling the 4th Battalion to, uh, to pick up extra shifts. One of the things that, that doesn't change is, you know, the, the manner in which members are continuing to get paid and benefits that they've received. We've been fortunate to receive hazard pay here in the in the city of Atlanta that was gifted to us by, you know, the uh, mayor and administered by the uh, fire chief for members. You know, we get a uh, monthly bonus for being on the on the front lines, as well as comp time on top of that. And with any large organization, sometimes, you know, messages don't get out to all of the fire department members and the local can supplement that. And as well as, you know, we allow members who are on shifts to uh, relay messages to and from each other, as well as anything that, it, you know, might be coming up that we might have missed as the executive board. One of the things I'm most proud of, this happened very recently, uh, Andrew, who you've got on the show with us, you know, is was reached out to an HR manager and requested a Zoom training meeting for reading checks. Uh, our, de- our department has just gotten a, a, another uh, pay increase that was put in place this fiscal year, and there was some confusion about how they were going to continue to pay for incentives as well as how our paychecks are now going to be impacted. Well, Andrew organized with one of the HR managers to put together a Zoom meeting um, over a three-shift period. And the first one was yesterday. They had one today and the next one will be on a Monday. So we also, we give a lot of freedom to our members to share ideas, share information. And guys like Andrew, who are the up-and-coming leaders within our local, within our fire department, can see and can help contribute to the overall success to all the all of the members. Andrew, I just built you up there, buddy. Did you find success? Have you gotten some feedback regarding that Zoom meeting over the last couple of days? Oh yeah. So you know, it, it it's funny because what I've learned in in trying to trying to make the morale better, whatever I can do as an individual is just going to people, talk to them, try to find what the general consensus is, what's the biggest common denominator, and just try to do it with that, and just kind of what you know, the benefit of having a Facebook group and what Paul was saying about communication is a lot of times things get, things get lost in translation. Like, you know, every fire department uh, has their complaints and, you know, whether it's pay, you know, staffing or whatever the case may be, but sometimes the cause is not what we think it is. And, you know, just as I was saying, I'm a really advocate of, you know, getting the full story, being meticulous as to not just going off of a headline. You know, I'm the same way. And I try to give, you know, everybody that's involved the benefit of the doubt. So what he was saying with organizing with HR, you know, I really just asked the right question at the right time. And, you know, the right people heard it and they came out and delivered. And, you know, there's so many so many people I talked to with 20, 30 years on saying that there was a few things they didn't understand with their check. And I feel like I just got lucky and, you know, just trying to reiterate the relationship and put a face behind the complaint. Cause you know, I know when they look at the paperwork, they just, all they see is just we're complaining, but you know, we all, we all want to be treated fairly and, and want to be paid and just communication is great. And it's just like you said, they, Paul has been running a great, 
avenue of communication in a Facebook group. It's even gotten people who are, you know, baby boomers and older to really get acclimated to using Facebook <laughs> just so they can be, just so they can be updated. My, my last Lieutenant that I had, he had reached the age to retire and I always make a joke that he could, he could send a text message faster than he can type on the keyboard. So having a Facebook group is a beautiful thing. That's good. So as we close out today's show, uh, I want to talk about tips that, that the two of you have for uh, fire departments down the road where civil unrest might occur. You guys have gone through a lot of traumatizing things as a department over the last uh, couple months. I mean, you've had the civil unrest, of course, you've had an intersection overtaken, multiple shootings, knives pulled out on firefighters while they've been on runs. Uh, but also there's the trauma of being issued the bulletproof vest and the ballistic gear, because you don't necessarily think that when you signed on for this job 10 years ago, that that was something you were going to have to do in the future. So as, as we close out the show today, what are, what are some tips that you, you'd give to, to firefighters that, you know, I wish I knew this three months ago when all this started. Right. So um, I guess I'll just say my few, just trying to facilitate, a morally and culturally diverse environment. And just to expand upon that, in the Atlanta Fire Department, we have, you know, we have gay people, we have white people, we have black people, we have people that are from less affluent neighborhoods, we have people that are from more affluent neighborhoods. We have people that are police officers, we have people that are not, we have people that have culturally been raised to have more respect or less respect for law enforcement for no, you know, ill-intended reasons, and everybody's going to have their own perception. So as I have my beliefs, I understand that the, the chemistry in an engine company, a ladder company, just the members in the fire department, try to be open to different views, letting someone express how they feel, uh, especially in a time like this sometimes can be very important. Um, you know, I had a call where one of my coworkers was called a, ra a racial slur. And we had to talk about it. I'm like, you know, how do you feel? And this is different because, you know, being African-American, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, like I'm, I'm gonna be the one the more ready expecting something like that based on how culture and racism is projected in the media. But now here we have, you know, this guy, hey, I've never seen him do anything racist. You know, he always gives prompt quality service in a less affluent neighborhood full of African-Americans. And he's being hit by this, seeing a different perspective and was also a police officer um, before he came on the job. And, you know, uh, Spencer Slatton, great man, best, best rookie I've ever had a very, and I just put him just past the rookie that we had before that, because we were able to have those conversations and it's just really understanding each other. So being able to understand each other first and it's the conversations in the locker room that help you win out in the court and on the game. So you got to have that first. I, I would stay, I, you know, I would try my best to stay within the recommended policies of the department. But I mean, let's be real. Like you have to really challenge yourself to have the difficult conversations and practicing that in the station may help you, you know, diffuse a situation on a call that you run. So I would, I would definitely say those are my tips. Yeah. Um, well, I, I really got to give some, some credit to the members here. I know you've asked me what, what I wish I would have known. And um, what I think what, what I've learned through this is actually, you know, we are a members driven organization and 
the local 134 success has been through great membership. Our guys and girls, you know, in uniform and members of the local push us, the executive board, to be better. And it, they really haven't let up on us whatsoever. So it's a real credit to them for us to build the success. It's because they, they haven't let us sit back. And I do think they do appreciate the efforts that we put in. And when we've got that membership drive, you, you end up with leaders like Andrew here who you know, aren't on the executive board and that we hope to bring into the fold you know, as, the, as his future continues to grow here. And uh, so I, I really give the, the credit and I'm, you know, the message to those listening to this, keep pushing your local boards, you know, to be better. Don't, don't let them rest on what they're currently doing. You know, I, I just really appreciate you guys building the platform. Um, you know, just like I said, how the, the podcast I heard you all have for diversity, you know, and, they, and you asked one of those guys, what can you do? you know, as a person that's not a minority. And minority is is subjective to the situation, you know, and the best way to do it is to just talk, have the platform, you know, just what reiterating what Paul said is to just listen to the people underneath you. And I'm just a I'm just a really big advocate for that. So I think I think it's been great and I really appreciate it. Well, on that note, I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Paul Gerdes, president of the Atlanta Professional Firefighters. Uh, Andrew Anderson, local 134 member, sergeant and paramedic for Atlanta Fire Rescue, uh, for a great conversation today. Uh, difficult topic, as always. We don't uh, tread lightly on issues. Uh, we want to take them head on. Uh, I appreciate you joining us today for, for tackling these difficult discussions and uh, wish you the best of luck moving forward, uh, not just to the two of you, but to all the members of the Atlanta Fire Rescue Department and the local 134. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. I appreciate Guys, it. Really, really appreciate this awesome time. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for being here. You guys sharing is what makes this podcast work for all of our members. So it's you guys that made this podcast work. So thank you.